Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, JF and I are discussing the new Planet Weird documentary film, The Unbinding. Planet Weird is Dana and Greg Newkirk, along with their various associates, who help them conduct and film the paranormal investigations that are their stock and trade. In episode 67, J.F. and I discussed the Planet Weird docuseries Hellier, the third season of which is rumored to be in the works. If and when it drops, we will doubtless check back in with that ongoing and deeply bizarre story. By contrast with Hellier, though, The Unbinding is a one-off, a monster-of-the-week standalone adventure that follows the Newkirks and their associates as they investigate a small wooden statue that unleashes chaos and terror on anyone who possesses it. We do a decent job of telling the story in what follows, so I won't say much more about it here. But I do want to clear up something to which I allude in passing, a distinction between the inside and the outside. Imagine I am playing an especially absorbing game, say The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which I have been chipping away at since the summer. I fight monsters, search for treasure, help out various Hyrulean NPCs, and explore the gigantic multi-tiered world that Nintendo has created for players to inhabit. Within that world, I have real emotional experiences, events I will remember. The other day, I jumped on the back of a dragon and rode it out of hell, an experience that felt exactly as awesome as it sounds. Now, imagine I am playing this game, utterly immersed in its world, only to be interrupted by an unsympathetic stranger who walks into my living room, sees my look of rapt concentration, and says, What are you so excited about? That's not a real dragon, and you're not a knight of Hyrule. You're just some asshole holding a game controller, and you probably should be doing something more valuable with your time. We would call such a person a spoil sport. In episode 117, we discussed Johann Hausinger's theory that all games take place within a magic circle that bounds them and sets them off from ordinary life. The spoil sport is the one who breaks that circle. Hausinger emphasizes that what marks the inside of the magic circle is order. Inside the circle, special rules obtain. Quote, Play demands order absolute and supreme. The least deviation from it spoils the game, robs it of its character, and makes it worthless. End quote. The spoil sport violates the ordered world inside the magic circle, not by breaking its rules, but by pointing out their artificiality. He makes a move to a meta level, working his way out from the concrete immediacy of the game the view from inside, to the outside, from which point of view the game comes to seem like something pitiable and small. Hausinger points out that the spoil sport is not the same as the cheater. Quote, The latter pretends to be playing the game and, on the face of it, still acknowledges the magic circle, 
while the spoil sport, quote, shatters the play world itself. By withdrawing from the game, he reveals the relativity and fragility of the play world in which he had temporarily shot himself with others. He robs the play of its illusion. End quote. A moment ago, I was blissfully absorbed in Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, where I was swift and strong and graceful, things I struggle to be in my everyday life. To put it in C.T. Nguyen's terms, I temporarily assumed a new agency. But now that the spoil sport has weighed in, that temporary agency seems like a shabby coat I borrowed from someone, ill-fitting and ridiculous. I'm not really saving Hyrule. That really is a shorthand for reality reduced only to those qualities that can be perceived by outside observers, which is to say, reduced to a bare physical substrate. The same spoil-sport move is made all the time in intellectual life, especially in matters of spirit. Spiritual life, which includes the paranormal, as Jeffrey Kripal and others remind us, consists almost entirely of insides. For example, think of a young girl's first communion. The girl kneels before a priest, bathed in candlelight, and with her entire extended family gathered around in their best clothes. Ritual words are murmured, incense smolders, the organ plays, and there is some kind of emotion astir in the room that will not outlast the hour. But before it disappears, that mood rules omnipotent within the little church. That is the inside of the experience, the feelings of solemnity and joy and communion and a thousand other things as a liturgical game is carried out. To the little girl, it is no game, but a holy moment never to be forgotten. But to a sociologist, the formal and game-like aspects of this ritual behavior stand out in stark relief. The little girl's first communion becomes but a manifestation of patriarchal capitalism or some similarly abstract structure, and her experience vanishes into the realm of the it-goes-without-saying. We acknowledge that it exists, but deny it a place in serious intellectual analysis. From the beginning, Weird Studies has been an intellectual project dedicated to upholding the dignity and autonomy of the inside, wherever it may be found. This does not mean we assume the perspective of the inside credulously and uncritically, but we do insist that you can never reduce an inside to an outside. Well, you can, but then you lose the imaginal reality of the experience, which means that you lose everything that matters. It seems to me that this is what makes Planet Weird Productions different from the other paranormal investigation shows I have seen. They are dispatches from the inside. At the climax of The Unbinding, we see Dana Newkirk painstakingly forming a literal magic circle, and this image stays with me as I recall the entire film. The film itself casts a magic circle, within which it is possible to feel certain feelings and think certain thoughts. Outside that circle, maybe it just looks like another spook show. But there is an inside. And in this episode, we invite you to join us there, where the wonder is. One quick announcement before we get to the show proper. On Wednesday, October 25th, exactly two weeks from when this episode drops, 
JF and I will be doing a live show at the IU Cinema in Bloomington, Indiana. At 7 p.m., there will be a screening of David Cronenberg's 1983 film Videodrome in a sparkling new 4K restored print with the conversation to follow. Tickets are $10 and the IU Cinema can fill up quickly, so grab them while you can. Okay, on with the show. Beginning of Planet Weird's new film, The Unbinding, Planet Weird being Dana and Greg Newkirk and their associates, Carl Pfeiffer, director, Tyler Strand, uh, and, um, oh, who was the fellow who was scanning everything? Jason Gowan. So, Planet Weird, the Newkirks and associates, their new film, The Unbinding, which we were talking about today. Right at the beginning, Greg Newkirk does a kind of voiceover introduction where he's talking about how they have this whole traveling museum of the paranormal and occult. Haunted objects are kind of a thing that they get into, something that they're very known for. And so consequently, they get a lot of people sending them things. And Greg says at the beginning that they get maybe 12 objects a week. And of them, you know, nine out of 10 don't do anything. And he says sort of in passing, something is pretty familiar in the weirdosphere, the idea that hauntings or like kind of strange paranormal manifestations are not so much inherent in an object, but something that emerges from the interaction of an object with a person or a place with a person, a living person. And he says something to that effect. And then he says, but then there's, you know, 10% that do something for us and not just for the person who sent it to us. And 1% of objects will force you to reconsider everything you thought you knew about haunted objects. It changes the way we think about haunted objects. And I did a little bit of math. If they're getting 12 objects a week times 52, that's 624. And if 1% of them change the way we think, that means they're getting a half a dozen objects a year that force them to rethink haunted <laughs> objects. Yeah. So every couple of months, I like to imagine one of them comes back from the post office box being like, oh, shit. Yeah, here we go Back again. to the drawing board. <laughs> <laughs> Got to rethink everything. Yeah. But I'm kidding. I, I, I kid. It's also possible to interpret them as saying 1% of that 10%. Uh, which would be a, an exceptionally small number. But I kid, the larger point that I'm trying to make here is that this is some carnival barker spiel. And I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing, but something that's really interesting about the Planet Weird productions, and of course, Hellier is the best known of Planet Weird's productions, is a strange mixture of honest, sincere, spiritual questing Spiritual practice, and one thing that I want to talk about today is the idea of the investigation as a kind of spiritual practice. A certain kind of spiritual practice that seems to have emerged 
in the contemporary era where paranormal investigation is a kind of, well, like I said, a spiritual practice. But uh, it's a mixture of that. And I mean, it's entertainment. It's content, right? It's something that is always being done for a camera Mm -hmm. and for a presumed audience. Mm -hmm. And so in this respect, it is actually with its sort of blend of sincere spirituality and theatricality, in fact, makes it very typical of magical culture, which so often leans heavily on like a dark aesthetic or whatever, not because it necessarily has an integral, organic connection to the material of the occult, of magic, but sometimes just because it puts you in a certain kind of mood. It's vibes. And so right off the bat, one thing that I want to think about is the kind of tricksterishness inherent in the Planet Weird Project. And I want to emphasize, I'm not saying any of this stuff like it's a bad thing. No. But one thing that will definitely occur to people who watch this film because they heard us do an episode on it, and this happened with Helliers, a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have watched Hellier who did, and then were like, well, I kind of don't see what the big deal is. This all seems obviously phony to me or flimsy or whatever. And I'm going to say right off the bat, one question that I'm not terribly interested in asking or answering is... Did all that stuff really happen just the way they said it happened? I'm going to say right now, I don't think there's a single thing in this film that you can't argue was faked, at least was fakeable. There's nothing in here that you can say like, okay, there's no way they could have rigged that. But if you were going in watching this film, looking for things to bust the filmmakers on, if you're looking for some kind of ironclad and scientific proof of the phenomena that they're talking about here, as in pretty much all other uh, precincts of the occult and paranormal, you will be disappointed. It just ain't about that. And we can talk further about like, what are the truth claims or reality claims about a film like this? But something that I am interested in thinking about is the mode of watching a film like this that is a bit more magical than scientific, to put it in Lionel Snell slash Ramsey Dukes's terms, um, where truth is an experience. And it is an experience that you have by virtue of, I don't know, being in a certain kind of mood, setting a vibe and allowing a certain kind of experience to result. This film is absolutely superb at the vibe setting. And if you go with it, if you allow it in, allow it to become a part, like an object of meditation, you will have certain kind of experience. It will become interesting. If you go in looking for bulletproof facts and reason, you will miss everything. Yeah. Anyway, so I wanted to start with that fairly lengthy caveat. Proviso, something like that. No, it's a great gambit for a conversation. There's a couple of things in there that I'd like to work with. Like, first of all, that opening where Greg is basically giving us a kind of statistical analysis of haunted objects and narrowing down the ones that really change the way we think about haunted objects. 
what does that mean to change the way we think about haunted objects? It means that these haunted objects, this 1%, whatever it is, these six objects a year or six objects a decade, I don't know. These objects present us with some fact, something that forces us to reconsider the way we think about things. That's the definition of objectivity, or at least one definition of objectivity is something which you must reckon your thoughts with. It's no longer mm. going to conform itself to your expectations, to your mm. thoughts, to your conceptualization. Yeah. So this is what you've referred to in the past as the realist moment, right? So these, we're talking about haunted objects that pack a realist moment, a moment where we must reckon with the very idea of haunted objects. So it's interesting the way the prologue works, because at first it's like, you know, hauntings most of the time are relational phenomena. A person has a special connection with this object, probably a negative connection with an object. And the object then haunts them in the sense that there's a psychic residue of some kind of experience or something that results in this person experiencing the object as being haunted. And Dana says at the beginning of the film that usually by getting rid of the object, sending it to her and Greg, this severs the link and helps people move on. So you can compare this to basically someone ending a bad relationship and then getting rid of the objects in the apartment that remind them of, the, of their ex. And this is just a therapeutic thing that one does, right? Because things retain the psychic residue. You, you can't really find an objection to this definition. If that's what hauntings are, then I think everybody would agree that there are haunted objects. Then the question is, well, what happens when an object starts to perform its haunting, starts to manifest its hauntedness with other people? And that's yeah. where the realist moment starts to creep in. And then once in a while, there's an object that will not allow itself to be reduced to that subjectivist starting point where you go, well, all this yeah. is psychology. There's something more than psychology going on here. There's something we need to think about these objects in a different way. That does require, I think, that we take those realist moments that happen in the documentary as having happened for real. If mm -hmm. it's not true that, and I, uh, I'm not objecting to what you said, I agree with what you said, but for a reason I'll get to in a second. For example, at the very beginning of the film, one of the first things that happens to Greg and Dana in relation to the statue that we'll describe in a moment, they get the statue and they put it in the office. They leave it there after photographing it, cataloging it, and then they kind of leave it in the office. And then there's a thump, a sound coming from the office. Greg goes, he opens the door. You know, some of their collection is there in this room. There's a crucifix on the wall and the Jesus figure on the crucifix has been torn off and thrown to the ground, but Jesus's arm is still dangling from the cross, which I found quite yeah. <laughs> a, a really arm. effective yeah. image there. And right below the crucifix is the statue. So the only way that little figure of Jesus could have gotten off the cross is by someone holding the cross against the wall and pulling the figure off. There's no other way it could have right. happened. And then they have a night cam where they're watching the statue and they see the statue move just a couple of inches, maybe a couple of centimeters at one moment during the night. And these are realist moments. As a viewer, you kind of have to, at least within the logic of the film, see these things as having happened. And I would be quite disappointed if they had made that shit up and put it in the movie. So I think that insofar as... Yeah as we want to believe that this is the haunted object that changes the way we think about haunted objects, it, 
does so because these things happened. Because yeah, these things right, actually right. happened. Yeah. My point was to some extent that there's a certain kind of debunking mindset that's going to approach this and, and going to look at the film of the object kind of moving, which really does look uncanny yeah. and, and scary, yeah. and say like, oh, yeah, that would have been easy to fake. Yeah. But, and I totally agree. That's and, why, that's, yeah. And, and every last thing, eyebrow raising thing that happens in this film, a debunker will not be satisfied with the evidentiary state. No. No, I, I don't know. I just find that kind of I find that um, path of association very uninteresting. I completely um, agree. If you decide that's how you're going to engage with a film like this, then you will not be watching this film. OK, but let's you just won't. You're just uh, going to remain forever outside of it. Artworks are insides. And if you insist on staying always on the outside of them, then you're not even really engaging with them at all. That's exactly where I was going to. Go next. Exactly. Arts. Uh, um, um, what did you, what did you say? What are inside? Artworks are inside. Artworks yeah. are inside. Insights. And yeah. so we're considering the film as an artwork. Also, we might consider the haunted object in the film, the statue as an artwork. So mm. this entire narrative deals with insides. And unfortunately, we don't have a statistical analysis or like um, evidence-based methods that can really deal with insides on their own terms. The only way we can deal with insides is by turning them into outsides. And yeah. that's a problem with investigation. But And then mm. you said, this is an instance or what the Planet Weird crew is doing is showing us investigation conducted as a spiritual practice. So yeah. that's really interesting. Like. I think the exemplar of someone who investigated and saw investigation as a spiritual practice, the modern exemplar of that is Carl Jung, who mm. was ousted from the official kind of like sanctioned quarters of science precisely because he insisted on doing science on the inside, insider mm. science. He thought that you could do empirical research in the realm of psyche and by extension in the entire kind of psychosphere in which we exist together because we are all together kind of sharing a psychic space and this was the next point i wanted to make you mentioned like the idea that there might be trickery involved well certainly the editing is all trickery because nothing happened exactly like what we're seeing it. All the shots we're seeing are reenactments. Uh, documentary is a reconstruction. It's not a capture. It's not a surveillance operation. Uh, documentary is you recreate, reconstruct a narrative that you extract from a big, huge sequence of complex events. And it's worth mentioning that they were making the hellier documentary while this was happening. So this is kind of like something that happened while they were making Hellier, if I got the, the timeline correctly. The whole idea of like, in order to get a real magical effect, you have to first pull a few tricks, makes perfect sense if you see magic, or I'm using the word magic, maybe the paranormal, as inhering in a kind of aesthetic dimension of reality, which is only understandable rationally if you can allow the existence of insides, not just outsides, not just objects you can measure, but qualitative events and that sort of thing. So Shannon Taggart, who is a photographer that we've had on the show, she's the founder of the Lilydale event that we attended this year. She is working now with some really crazy material that I can't really 
talk about. Um, Phil and I got to talk to her about it in Lilydale, but it's it's all kind of in the works. But one of the things that she's noticed is that paranormal phenomena take on a kind of narrative form almost as a matter of course. It falls into a weirdly uh, predictable act structure. And one of the things that Shannon's been studying is the five-act structure, as exemplified, for example, in Shakespeare, because she feels like the phenomenon manifests a kind of five-act pattern normally. Like, this is how it works. And this, and here we could, we could cite Jeffrey Kripal or uh, Diana Pasulka as people who work with this idea that there's something fundamentally aesthetic about the paranormal. And so if that's the case, then by constructing a narrative out of a series of events, what you're doing is attaining to a reality in the event, which you would be blind to if you simply limited yourself to counting the various events that form the sequence, like you were just tabulating you know, causal reactions or whatever. So it's possible that by telling a story, we're getting more from a reality than we would if we were simply to look at the facts. And that's mm. certainly how human re- relation works. Like you don't just look at one thing one person did and judge them on, oh, no, these days we do, uh, judge them on that. You have to look at things in context and context mm. implies the interiority of the person acting and the interiority of the people around them. And then there's this whole kind of a causal dimension that is taken for granted when we're talking about people. And here, I think they're inviting us to think of objects along the same lines of thinking of objects as agents and the entire universe, you know, by extension, being interpretable as both a kind of object of study, something we can break down into parts and measure, and a kind of weird meta narrative, a kind of great story, Mm. which we can only understand if we are able to inhabit the space in which imagination and perception achieve a kind of weird unicity. I think we should probably tell a little bit of what happens in this film. Sure. So... This story begins with a Reddit post, somebody on, I don't know which subreddit was, some paranormal subreddit, who, somebody who tells a story about him and his friend who went hiking in, I believe, the Catskill Mountains and found this wooden effigy, fairly abstract sort of wood carving of a human form. In other words, not very detailed. But with a couple of remarkable features. First off, a trio of nails driven into each eye. So there's six nails driven into like the eye sockets of this wooden effigy. And a noose, like some rope has been tied in the form of a noose around the neck of this thing. And there's also something that appears to have been broken off. The figure has two hands that are bracketing some object that has been torn away. And the guy writing this on Reddit says, well, I told my friend not to take it, but he took it. And the guy's like, you know, a vocally atheistic guy who doesn't believe in spirits and doesn't believe in, you know, bad luck. So he didn't think anything of taking the object, but immediately starts getting 
some severe haunting going on in his place. All kinds of crazy shit that culminates in finding like wet footprints throughout his place. Can I can, well, I, can I interject? Because yeah. the series of events that he reports is really interesting because they take on a very clear narrative form. So the first thing that happens is that he starts to smell pond water. His dog is freaking out. Then there's a knock at 3 a.m. on the do- at the door, and he goes down. He hears, I think he hears some banging too. Some yeah, uh, and the statue moves. You know, the weird stuff happens right away. But then he he hears this knock at the door at 3 a.m., which is a classically kind of witching hour sort of moment. Hmm. He opens the door and he immediately feels like he shouldn't have opened the door. There's nobody there. And after that, he finds oh, muddy yeah, footprints in the house. And, you know, so there's this kind of thing where he had to open the door. This thing came in, even though it's part of the statue. It's weird. And of course you could say, well, yeah, the guy's writing a Reddit post. So he's shaping it all into, you know, because it's obviously just BS. But the problem is that it it looks like BS when it's real. This is what I want to say, is that when you experience this stuff, it looks like a Hollywood movie. It feels like yeah. that. It yeah. That's the form it takes. And that makes it really difficult to make a case for it because it's like, you won't believe me if I tell you this because it happens exactly as you would expect it to, you know? Yeah. Uh, anyways, go proceed. Sorry. Okay. Well, in any event, the guy eventually flips out and leaves to go stay with his friend for a while and they don't know what to do with this object. So they send it to the Newkirks. Immediately upon arriving at the Newkirks, the same kind of shit starts to happen around their place. They're the first major incident is the thing with the crucifix that you've already mentioned. They hear this thump, they walk in, they find that the crucifix has been badly damaged and the statue has somehow moved yet again and is sitting in a chair right under the broken crucifix. Um, oh yeah, this is one of the things that the Redditor's friend had seen is that he, he saw a female figure all wet, like she just mm-hmm. crawled out of a pond standing yeah. in his living room and then Dana like ends a hag. Up, and, and Dana sees the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they, they end up calling the statue the crone because of this image, this apparition that's uh, associated with it. Yeah. And there's always this pervasive smell of like pond water, of like stagnant yeah. water every time there's some kind of haunting episode. And then things get so bad with the Newkirks that they have a good sit down and with the statue because they've developed techniques for dealing with these things. And one of them is to talk to these things, to treat them as subjects yeah. and listen to them. Mm-hmm. So we're here, we're, we acknowledge you, but we have to coexist. Because at one point, it's climbing up on the couch, like they find, you know, wet footprints on the, it's a bunch of stuff that on happens. On the back of the couch, yeah, yeah. So they get really kind of like, okay, we got to take action here. So they talk to it and immediately it starts to generate the sound of rushing water. And uh, they had in their previous apartment experienced a kind of, some kind of flood situation. So they freak out, they run over, there's no water anywhere. It stops. And when they come back, the statue has moved under the, uh, the television set. Greg Mm. goes down to pick it up. And then the television starts to, starts to tilt, topple onto him and Dana grabs it. So at that point he's like, screw this. They lock it in a box. They put it away. We can't deal with this right now. They take it to a paranormal convention yeah. and some guy is like nagging them to show them the, the thing. And finally they're like, okay, fuck it. Yeah, here. And they take it out and immediately all hell breaks loose. The yeah. chandeliers in the venue start swinging. Somebody's pop explodes and like destroys all of her books. And a guy on the other end of the hall starts having a seizure with like blood trickling out of his mouth and shit. Yeah. 
I found like that. Like instantly all yeah. of this shit happens inside of like 20 seconds. Yeah. And then the, this guy who was nagging at them to look at the statue, like is basically weeping. Saying, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's one yeah. of those, you can, you know, you can imagine this moment. They didn't have the budget to re, to re, but it sounds one, exactly but. like something from a paranormal movie, like thriller. Exactly. Your point, you know, that these narrative patterns manifest and, and it sounds fake. Reality is so fake. The weird manifests as cliche, and that's what makes it so fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So after that, they're like, okay, we got We have to get rid of this thing. So their initial thinking was that, well, the point is we should bring this back to where it was found, leave it where it was. But before they get rid of it, they want to scan it. So they get a friend of theirs, Jason Gowan, who was an investigator who worked with Greg back in the, when they were teenagers, like just as, as a ghost hunter kind of thing. And this Jason Gowan dude has a 3D scanner and offers to properly scan this object. And then they decide that while they're scanning it, while they're doing the 3D scan, which is kind of a time intensive kind of thing where you have to like walk around the object with the scanner and you have to do several yeah. passes. Uh, while they're doing that, Dana decides to use the Estes method to try to communicate with this thing. And we should probably describe what that method is. And you're very good at describing things, Phil. So what's oh, the Estes thanks. method? <laughs> <laughs> so there's uh, something that it's like a ghost box, I think is sometimes called. It's a frequency scanner, like a radio frequency scanner that will scan up and down radio frequency spectrum and will arbitrarily lock onto different frequencies. And from this kind of soup of static, you'll hear little words popping out, right, from broadcasts and so on. And so the idea is that, you know, you can kind of channel spirits that will communicate by means of this kind of randomized radio generator thing. But the Estes method introduces a few refinements. So the medium is blindfolded. So they have their vision completely obscured. And also all they can hear are the random blips of the radio broadcasts that cut in and out. Uh, they're using like heavy duty noise isolating headphones. Yeah. So the idea is that the medium will be sitting in the room just having a completely inner experience of these various disembodied voices floating up while other investigators are in the same room asking questions so the medium can't hear those questions but the medium has been instructed to speak aloud every word that pops into their ear from the the radio scanner it's phenomenal what happens i mean there's some amazing estes method stuff in hellier but this was on another level like yeah. they're actually having a coherent conversation so again buy-in required friends where they're just faking it all and Dana knows exactly what they're saying, you know, up to you. They don't strike me as that type. No. <laughs> and uh, and so I'm buying it. And so what was going on is that they were able, I mean, Jason Gowan and Greg Newkirk were able to talk to the entities, because the, there are two, well, the entities. They realize quickly there's not one, but two entities yeah. in this statue. This is where I start to not stop enjoying the film, because I thoroughly enjoyed the film till the end, but I start to have questions, because investigatively speaking, I think that there's a bifurcation here where I would have taken a different tack, but that's another, we can get to that later. So they interpret this as two entities inhabiting this thing. There's a man and a mm -hmm. woman. And you have to watch it to see how crazy it is. Like they're asking questions and Dana is just 
she's just saying, you know, like speaking out the words she's hearing, and they are very clear, propositionally well-formed answers to the questions a lot of the time. And so uh, what they learn is that there are two entities in this thing. One entity calls itself Bidum, or at least the word Bidum keeps coming up, and they interpret this to be the name of the male entity. And, or Brother uh, Bidum. Brother Bidum. And then Brother Bidum is, seems to be terrorizing, or uh, at least um, holding captive, a female entity who remains nameless in, in that session, and she wants to get out, and this male entity wants to keep her where she is. So the takeaway, as far as the Newkirks are concerned, is that the crone they've been seeing is the feminine entity. It is in this statue. The statue is her statue, and we'll get to who they think that is later. And the noose and the nails are essentially the bitum part, which is the part that's been added to the statue in order to bind its power and to stop it, to contain it, to bind it. That's the magical term. And they conclude that the feminine spirit is somehow in need of help. And this bitum is cast as the villain who's keeping that other entity captive. And so the quest then becomes how do we free this feminine entity? That's in the statue by getting rid of Bidum. That's how they say, we'll get rid of them. That's how the, the scene ends. So, and then the rest of the film is them trying to figure out how they're going to do that. How are they going to unbind this binding? How they're going to unbind the feminine entity in the statue? Well, and also they want to find out a little bit about what that entity is. Sort of. Yeah. They, There's also, uh, that's a part, that's an important part of it. I mean, you might disagree with the way that they form their conclusions, but they do some research and they come to some tentative conclusions yeah. about its identity, yeah. that it's a Ukrainian goddess or a goddess from a kind of Ukrainian folk worship, Mokosh, a feminine deity. They talk to a scholar at the University of Kentucky, a woman named Jean-Marie Rouillet-Willoughby, who's a professor of Russian studies, and which I appreciated because we get a little bit of sort of sober scholarly commentary, which is like, well, we know next to nothing about a pantheon of pre-Christian deities from- the Slavic world. You know, old Russia or the, from, yeah, from Slavic lands. The renovation of pagan worship is tied up with political movements, with the decision to repudiate Christianity as like not our culture or something that has been imposed on our culture, Russian culture, Ukrainian culture from without, and seeing pagan worship as being more, uh, I don't know, truer and perhaps more ethnically appropriate, which can get us off into a terrain that one often encounters in neo-pagan circles where the renovation of ancient deities has a distinctly nationalist political cast. But the point that the scholar makes is that uh, people have all kinds of political motivations for renovating these entities, whether or not we really know very much about them. Right. Bringing these entities back as objects of worship. And... She does point out in response to a question of Greg's that there is always a lot of potential for conflict between contemporary Christian groups, particularly, you know, Orthodox Christianity as it exists in Slavic lands today, which 
perhaps feels itself to some extent under siege by some of these current neo-pagan and nationalist currents that have uh, welled up since the fall of the old Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. So there are those kinds of currents that come up. They make some tentative deductions that must, must have something to do with Ukrainian folk worship. A lot of that association seems to come from the mere fact that there's a lot of Ukrainian settlements, like Ukrainian expatriate settlement, right around the mountain where this object was originally found. Uh, yeah. yeah. But that's the point that I wanted to make is that I agree with them that the statue does look quite Slavic in its style, and they find an, a Russian Etsy artist who makes these neo-pagan statuettes that look quite similar to the one that they found. Essentially, the story that starts taking shape is that some neo-pagan made this statue of this goddess Mokosh, who is associated with moisture and all the, you know, all the classic feminine archetypes, but also a goddess of fate. So often she was seen holding a sheaf of wheat. And so that's possibly what she was holding. And so they think, okay, well, this is a neo-pagan kind of statue that some Christian wanted to bind. Okay. Because presumably there is some kind of beef between a Christian and a neo-pagan group. And in this town of Ellenville. Yeah. In the Catskills. And they and know. Brother Bidda might be some Christian brother or a man of religion, okay. as Greg yeah. says, who has a reason to want to silence and bind right. this goddess. This is the first weird thing for me because in Orthodoxy, you don't call monks brother. That's a Catholic thing. You call monks father. Also, when I heard Brother Bidham, my mind went straight to Thelema and those types of movements. Mm. Um, uh, it, it seemed like a weird leap to me. And, and it mm. was a key leap, right? Because, well, no, there's also the fact that it tore the Christ off of the crucifix. Yeah. And then they go, okay, well, Brother Bidham, so a priest of some sort did this to the statue. But the method that the priest used to bind the statue are witchcraft or folk magic methods, which is yeah. weird. You'd figure a priest yeah. would exercise the statue or would perform- yeah, nails to blind and a noose to choke in silence. Exactly. Which yeah, is that's straight classic up witchcraft. sympathetic magic. Yeah. Straight yeah. up witchcraft. So witchcraft, broadly speaking, it'd be a weird way for Brother Bidham, the, the Orthodox monk, to bind this statue when this monk would have access to rites that are specifically meant to do that in the Orthodox tradition, and namely mm. exorcism. So to me, it looks like witches versus witches. I, I don't like using the word witches, but magic versus magic, because witches yeah. definitely is like, there's a well, whole because other side. Uh, one made, yeah. Well, because one major thread of both this production of Planet Weird and also we saw it in Hellier was the importance of Dana Newkirk's contribution to this I think absolutely central contribution, probably really the heart and soul of this project Definitely. is Dana's practice as a witch, something that she has practiced since she was 16 and is clearly a very dedicated, very sincere and very thoughtful religious practitioner for whom witchcraft is not some scary shit. It is, it's not Halloween. It's, you know, it's not the sensationalized picture we may have of witchcraft. It's something else entirely. So yeah, by talking about witches in a kind of casual and conversational way to refer to people doing people evil who shit. practice magic. 
Period. Yeah, we want to we want to make that distinction between witch in the sense of like a bad, scary witch and witches as they are developed in this film and other. But I have I have witch friends, and I, I don't think anyone of them would deny that you can use witchcraft for all kinds of purposes, right? <laughs> like you can perform yeah. magic, beneficent but, and maleficent. Exactly. Okay, so regardless of who bound the statue, the person used magic to do it. They didn't right. use, you know, of course, you could argue that- Exorcism is a kind of magic, yeah. But it's not the same aesthetics. It's not the same methods. That's not the same right. thing. All right. So that's, right. so that's the first thing. And that doesn't seem to be addressed. The other thing is that the Ukrainian connection, it, why, I, I, I just couldn't help it. Like, why aren't they talking to people in this town? Like, I guess maybe they were t strapped for time, or maybe their method is that they want to live out the story that they're developing kind of imminently and they don't want interference. I don't know. Maybe they did talk to people. I mean, they certainly did in Hellier. They spent a lot of time talking yeah. to locals. Why didn't they go and talk to the guys who found the statue? Do they know the exact spot? Uh, how could they have known the exact spot? Did the guys give them a map? We weren't told. Are they on some, are they on the same mountain at all at the end when they go it? Cause they want to bring it back to where it was found, but we don't, we haven't met these these people who sent them the statue, like it's just like these weird missing links, you know, that I, yeah. I think that it's just weaponizes skepticism. Like I, I want to know what's going on. I want to believe that your conjectures are like founded and that's too bad because they're obviously dealing with something that's really haunted if what happened happened. But it seems to me like the conclusion that this thing should be unbound, even that decision. That seems doesn't seem obvious to me that they should have unbound it. There might have been good reasons to bind this thing. After all, the nature of the hauntings were how they were able to deduce that this was Mokosh. So there was uh, swamp water, a connection with children. At one point, um, there's a threat. Jason, yeah, the, the entity. Yeah, Jason yeah. takes the object into his house, and he and his wife have a small child that fortunately was staying with a grandparent the night that they had the object in their house, but they had this kind of crazy haunting experience complete with the muddy, wet footprints and the smell of pond water and thumping and all kinds of weird shit. And then finding like this soaked patch uh, from where this entity presumably was standing for a while in front of the crib, the empty crib that their child would normally be sleeping in. And Mokash is associated with the stealing of children, right? Yeah. She's also associated with causing illness in people who break her taboos. So she was mm. long associated with Fridays, I think. And if you worked on Fridays, you were going to be punished. And of course, that was a problem for the church. And they were trying to like, no, no, Sunday's the day for that. But anyway, so, so people would get sick on Fridays because Mokosh was pissed off that they were working. And the first thing it does when they take it out of the box at the convention is it gives a guy a violent seizure complete with profuse bleeding from the face. <laughs> like, yeah. this is not just a joke. Like, if this had happened, um, at one point, Greg is like, it's a chthonic deity. It's neither good nor evil. Okay, I agree with that. It's neither, but that doesn't mean that we don't get to evaluate what it does morally, uh, it seems to me like this Mokash figure is doing really nasty stuff. And the logic seems to be that it wouldn't do that if it were not bound. But the things it's doing are precisely what the God as defined does. Do you understand what I'm saying? What, what God? The God Mokash, the goddess Mokash. 
Oh, the goddess Mokash is describing. I, I, oh, I yeah. see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, just in case the listener didn't get it, the goddess Mokash is described as stealing children, striking people with illness, associated with palm water, all this stuff. Okay, all the hauntings are precisely what this goddess does when she's doing her thing. So the conclusion is to unbind her, but it just never clear came clear to me why this thing should be unbound if it's doing mm-hmm. this sort of thing. Because the logic right. that it wouldn't do these things if it weren't bound implies a kind of moral dimension. And they say she's chthonic. She's chthonic because she just does what she does, which is all the stuff she's doing around the statue. So how does unbinding her not just permit her to do it more? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't understand the logic. I'd love to, maybe we should talk well, to Greg. Well, you know, at one point Greg says, he addresses a saying like, well, when you're walking down a street and you hear a scream coming from a dark alleyway, do you run down that alley to see if you can help? Or do you say, mm, probably a setup? And that's actually kind of an important question. I agree. Because it gets to the heart of what the Newkirks are doing. They are doing the fundamental magical act of treating the world as if it were sentient and intelligent, as if the things in this world, both the world as a whole and also the things within it, as if those are entities that, while we won't assume that they are like ourselves, at least possess enough of the you know divine spark of mind that we recognize in ourselves they possess enough of that that we can meaningfully engage with them as beings somewhat like ourselves and that is both uh it's both a perspective like a way of just relating to other things but also it's a ethical orientation and so you know It's all very well to talk about magic and to talk about the personification of seemingly lifeless things like wooden statues. It's all very well to call yourself a panpsychist, to say that you find it a convincing philosophical claim that everything is alive, uh, that there is a kind of life and intelligence in rocks and desks and whatnot. It's quite another thing to actually live your life in a way where your actions, your behavior, and your thoughts are actually conditioned by that idea. Like earlier, you were talking about the idea of the realist moment. This is from Wenton Duval's essay on the UFO taboo, which I've talked about before, notably, I think, in the Dark Neighborhood episode. And the quote from there is, A key premise of our argument is that critical theorization of the UFO taboo in relation to modern rule is possible only if it includes a realist moment, which grants to things in themselves, here, the UFO, the power to affect rational belief. And so that's the little capsule definition of what they mean by a rationalist moment, the power to affect rational belief. It's exactly what Greg says, changes the way we think of a haunted object. It's the realist moment, right? And so if you say, oh, I am going to personify thing. I'm going to live magically and I'm going to personify all the various things that I encounter. That only moves beyond a, a mere philosophical position to an actual existential position when it affects your rational belief mm-hmm. such that if you have this object that is manifesting all these strange and violent phenomena 
and you have this extraordinary medium ship experience with it, with the Estes method, where what emerges is a narrative of a female deity bound and silenced. You are presented with a human situation. If you choose to personify, to empathize with this object in this way, in this magical way, then you are faced with exactly the same kind of rational deliberation that one has when one hears a scream down a dark alleyway. And I think some of the controversy of this film, and I think there is a bit of controversy that's uh, poked up here and there mm. around, in the weirdest fear around it, comes from the fact that they are having to fashion on the fly within the context of a kind of spiritual investigation and ethics for dealing yeah. with non-corporeal intelligences. Correct. And like any magician, they're having to go by guesswork, seat of the pants. Like, as it is often said, you don't get, you know, entity caller ID. When these discorporeal entities show up in your life, you don't know what they are. Indeed, a lot of magic is trying to find out what they are. But at the end of the day, you always, I mean, the, the signature affect of magic is paranoia, or at least it can be, mm -hmm. because you are always dealing with a very strange, radically asymmetrical situation of knowledge where you have manifestations that are popping up out of the dark and you make your tentative hypothesis about what thing lies behind those manifestations deep in the dark. But you're always going on partial information and you're doing the best you can. And if you are also tasking yourself with behaving in an ethical fashion toward those unseen, unknown presences in the dark, then you are in a very precarious situation. Yes. You're doing something that's extremely difficult. And onlookers are always going to say like, you know, I would have played it different. I would have done it different. I would have drawn different conclusions. Um, that's what makes the film interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, everything I was saying presupposes that there's an ethical dimension to this sort of thing. And the question is, I mean, Greg says it right after the Estes Method scene. He says, there is a question whether we were being manipulated. You know, there's a classic trope in, in fantasy and horror, which I think is interesting. I've been thinking about this trope a lot in light of the course I'm doing on artificial intelligence, because here we're presented with a very similar phenomenon. This thing feels like a human being. You, you work with ChatGPT, it feels like you're talking to a person. I'd say maybe a, a very boring person most of the time, but a person. It's responding to you in a way that nothing but a person could do until five minutes ago, right? Mm. So the question, all the questions, the same questions arise. Do we owe this voice everything we owe a, a, another human being? Our ethical obligation isn't only to the entity we're dealing with in the moment, whether that's a human or a ghost or an AI, but to the whole community in which we are embedded. We are, have an ethical mm. obligation to others as well. If in this small town, someone bound this thing and put it there in this place and we take it out, it seems that before deciding whether this thing should remain bound or be unbound, whether... Because, I mean, classically, you know, there's a reason why the devil has a forked tongue. It's because spirits equivocate all the time. Mm. They can have many voices at once. Because you hear two voices, to me, doesn't necessarily mean there are two entities. Mm. 
Uh, yeah. It might be two aspects of the same entity. It just seems like more, I would have wanted to do more work before deciding, but maybe in the moment I would have felt the same way because I found the scene it put on in the hotel room when they were scanning the thing, the scene it put on of the male and the female voice and all that sounded very compelling. And so I think that there's a good chance I would have come to the same conclusion. I'm just like looking at it as a film, separating the fact that this is a narrative constructed out of life. And I don't mean any, I'm just looking at, if this were a Hollywood film, I, I would need to know who bound this thing? Why? Are, are the people still around? The statue looked pristine when they found it. This seems like a very recent event. It seems like this is a crucial component of making the ethical decision you're talking about. The rope looked very clean. The, yeah. Like the rope around its neck. Yeah. Looked yeah. very fresh and recent. The, the nails didn't look rusted. The thing was standing. You know, a little statue like that would have fallen within a few months at most, uh, would have fallen over because of wind or anything, like a freaking squirrel. Animals or yeah. whatever, yeah. So it seems like this was really recent, and this was probably a part of an ongoing story that we never get to see. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that they just kind of went with it and lived out their narrative with it. And at the end, Greg has some really cool stuff to say about how they participate in, in an archetype's kind of unfolding. And there's a way of trying to interpret this little story, much like they did in Hellier, in terms of changing, I mean, I guess the changing ideological landscape of the US, where the kind of like uh, dominant male Christian ethos is being replaced by a feminine, kind of more open. It, the, the the point is that as a story, it works. I just, I guess I just have, I couldn't, I couldn't get these questions out of my head watching it, you know? Well, I was having a lot of questions in my head too. And it occurred to me, it's like, I think that if this had been actually a much more heartless show, if it had just been like the way I feel like a lot of paranormal investigation entertainment goes, you would have fewer questions. But the fact that they doubled down on kind of empathizing with yeah. personifying the degree to which this investigation proceeds along the assumption that what they're dealing with are subjectivities that command a kind of compassion and action on their behalf. From that point of view, it's very American. <laughs> it feels yeah. like to me, like, yeah. like there's a, a sort of crusading aspect of it. Like we're going to go out and we're, there's a problem here and we're going to fix it. Um, right, right. If, if there hadn't quite been that degree of identification with the entity or the phenomenon, then it wouldn't call forth quite so many questions about ethics. And like, once you start saying Yes, I'm relating to this incorporeal being the way I would any intelligent being, the way I would a dog or another human being or, or whatever. Once you set off along that, then we're going to have questions about the specific decisions you made, just as we would, you know, your, the choices you make to ignore the boundaries of a person for their own good or for the greater social good, or whether it was a better idea, just leave them alone and blah, blah, blah. I have an example of that. So in the central episode, really the kind of pivotal episode where they're in this hotel room doing a live stream for, I guess, for their Patreon audience, and they're doing the Estes method and Jason is scanning the statue, they ask 
they actually, they get into a whole thing with the statue where the statue is making it clear, like, I don't want you to scan me. Yeah. It's like repeatedly. And again, you know, uncanny sort of synchronization between the things the investigators are saying and then the uh, random words that Dana is um, And also the pain. Spitting back to them. Whenever they start scanning, she feels physical pain. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, Duncan Barford wrote a blog post about this and he was saying like, well, if you're proceeding magically and you're thinking of this as an entity that calls for some kind of fellow feeling, some recognition as a another intelligent and feeling being much like yourself, then is this not a somewhat brutal approach? Because they ask, like, are you okay with this? No. Well, we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. And this is where the aspect of, like, investigation comes into play. Because I was thinking a lot about the idea of the spiritual practices on the model of an investigation. What does that mean and what does that look like? Well, investigation, the very word, implies something like a scientific investigation, or at least an investigation premised on certain scientific assumptions. And one such assumption might be that that which is investigated is an object out there over against the subject, which is me, the investigator. And that attitude very naturally tends towards a feeling that that object out there has no claim on this subject in here that I am able to investigate that thing out there with minimal concern for the implications of that investigation. You sort of think about like what would, you know, be a particularly terrible example of this kind of estrangement of subject and object that is kind of assumed in scientific investigation. Well, it might be vivisection. Right. Right. It might be, you know, acts of cruelty committed on animals because you're treating animals as basically like little machines, uh, little objects that you assume on the kind of a scientific warrant do not have the same kind of subjectivity that you do. You know, the warrant is that you can therefore treat them as a kind of almost inert matter that you can perform your operations upon. And. I'm speaking, of course, very broadly, but this is a problem that has come up again and again and again and again in the history of science. This is why there are institutional review boards in every research institution, certainly in the United States, probably elsewhere throughout the world, where if you're doing a scientific study of anything that involves human subjects or animals, you have to give a detailed report of how you were going to manage that ethically, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is that all of that sort of superstructure of like ethics reporting is necessary because there is in the heart of a kind of scientific logic, the logic of investigation, a certain degree of coldness. And so 
I'm not saying that the Newkirks and their associates are cold in their approach, but that there's a little bit of a almost an incoherence. On the one hand, a threshold decision to treat the entities that they encounter in the course of their investigations as fellow beings. But then at the same time, to approach them under the aegis of the investigation, which will lead to decisions like the one they made in that hotel room to override the very clearly articulated objections that that entity or entities had to make about the scanning. Uh, I think that's a good point. I I love coldness. That's a great word. Reminds me of Deleuze's famous book on Sakur Masak, uh, Coldness and Cruelty, where he develops a concept of coldness that would make it more... Uh, there's an ethics of coldness. You know, if you go to the hospital and uh, you are in a bad state, you will expect the doctors to treat you with the right amount of coldness. If you need to be held down, if you need to be, you know, like there's all kinds of ways in which coldness is necessary, which is my point. And that brings me back to the trope. I think that coldness may be, uh, you know, it's it's easy for us to look at what they did in this crazy situation and judge. I don't want to do that, but just questions that the narrative elicits in me. Maybe the coldness that was applied to like measuring and scanning to preserve the object, like the importance they attributed to preserving the object, right? The preservation yeah. of the object is what justified the kind of violence they committed to it, not just when they scanned it, but later when Tyler Strand kind of measures it and makes the mold for it, where uh, Dana was very uncomfortable with how it was taken out and, and, and being put on the kind of dissection table in a certain sense. Yeah. Whether, whether that coldness, may, maybe I could, yeah, I can see Duncan's point there. But then at the sudden, a lack of coldness when it comes to the narrative this thing presents to them. And suddenly a complete like, oh, well, you know, we need to unbind it. Again, I'm going back because I mentioned a trope earlier. I didn't, I didn't describe the trope I was talking about that I've been thinking about in terms of relating to AI. And it's the trope in, it goes all the way back into ancient myth of the hero is about to either kill the villain or... um yeah, usually the, the villain is trying to save his skin or her skin and takes the form of the hero's loved one, right? And then the hero right. is paralyzed and then, you know, you have the classic like, it's me. Oh, and then the hero for a moment falls under the spell. Daddy, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And then the, the hero falls under <laughs> the spell and yeah. then either because an ally kind of like snaps him out of it or her out of it or... uh he or she comes suddenly to their senses and does the right thing. There's a really nice rendition of this trope in the sequel to Blade Runner, where Harrison Ford's character, Deckard, is uh, faced with a perfect replicant, a perfect replica of the replicant Rachel from the first movie. And she comes over and they actually got an actress to do this, I think. It doesn't look CGI'd at all. It looks like they just got an actress that looked just like Sean Young. And she comes up and she does the thing, the trope. She's like, Deckard, blah, blah, blah. And you see him for a moment, he's caught under the spell and suddenly just turns and says, she had green eyes. So it's a classic trope and it's a warning. And it's Philip K. Dick articulated this very, very well in his um, essay, The Human and the Android, I believe, where he starts off by saying, there are things in this universe that really want us to think they're human, but aren't. And so yeah. you could extend this to a certain type of personality. You could say a sociopath is the same way. They'll give you whatever 
they think will be able to tug at your heartstrings to get what they want. It just seems to me that the coldness that was displayed in their need to preserve this object, maybe some of that mm -hmm. should have been applied to evaluating what the object was expressing. When you're investigating people, it's not like you're investigating objects, right? You're investigating people. You said mm -hmm. you have all these ethical constraints that come into play. But in a way, the estrangement of subject and object becomes all the more essential when you're studying people, because it's essential when you're studying people that you study subjects. But subjects to you are the ultimate object. They're completely black box. They can't be measured. They're completely mm -hmm. independent and autonomous mm -hmm. of you. So you have to lend to the object of study, namely a human subject or a non-human subject, a capacity to feel, to decide, and to lie. And this is why police investigations are very different from geological investigations. You know, rocks don't mm. lie. People lie. And so it's that dimension of the thing that that's why I would have liked to see more like talking to people in Ellenville, finding out what happened there recently, you know. It's not just them and the mm. statue. It's them, the statue, and the human that made the statue or bought the statue and the human that bound the statue. There are other people involved in this story. Yeah. And they have a claim in the ethical stakes of it. I have to say, I find myself extremely uncomfortable talking about ethics. Yeah. I just do. Even though living an ethical life is important to me, at the same time, I just feel so uncomfortable talking about this kind of thing, where it feels like instead of talking about a film, we're talking about mm. some people, the new Kirks, and instead of talking about like aesthetic choices have made, we're talking about ethical choices they made. Um, well, it's a documentary. <laughs> and part of that is just me. My intense dislike of moralizing of any kind my feeling that our own age has been poisoned by a kind of compulsive and never-ending orgy of moralism moralism and ethics isn't the same thing but I know, but orgy is well-chosen word because there's something about the compulsive repetition of sexual behavior to attain something that's insistently, stubbornly never appears, like somehow by constantly casting judgments upon one another, we will reach a point of true fulfillment where we will understand what is right and what is wrong. And yet somehow that never actually happens. Instead, all we end up doing is, is being shitty to one another, making the world a generally worse place. No, I understand that morals and morality or moralism and ethics are entirely different things. And yet <laughs> moralism is what you have left of ethics in an age of lead such as ours. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And I want to say that to me, the film just simply elicits or, or licenses a conversation about the ethics of the weird, which I think is a good conversation to have. If we're going yes. to engage with the weird, if we're going to make it a part of our world, then ethical issues are raised. And if we talk about, um, I don't know, uh, certain UFO investigators, we don't hesitate to bring in ethical issues when it comes to how sure. the phenomenon. Yeah. So 
That's the point. I think the difference between merely moralizing and talking about ethics depends upon our ability to move up from criticizing certain observed behaviors, like, for example, the decision to scan the this statue, and outwards towards more general principles. And so we were talking about like a certain inconsistency in like a coldness applied to the business of scanning a statue, but a distinct lack of coldness in accepting a certain narrative in order to arrive at the idea of unbinding, blah, blah, blah. I wonder if that incoherence doesn't come from a higher order sort of like, I won't say incoherence, but a, a kind of an aporia, a little area of unresolved tension between two different possible understandings mm. of haunted objects. Okay. And I think that it comes perhaps from the nucleus of Planet Weird, the relationship between Dana and Greg Newkirk, which is expressed pretty explicitly at the beginning where Greg is talking about his youthful experiences, just, you know, going with his buddies to graveyards at midnight to kind try and freak themselves out and how Dana had a different investigative group and they start working together. Greg talks about how he gets a crush on Dana and she's scary because she's a witch and he's like a, you know, a Baptist kid and he's supposed to be a minister. Very interesting and quite a charming story. But I think it's actually really important to tell that story too, because it seems to me that those two are the the heart of the project and they are rather different people. Greg is Mr. Action, Mr. Adventure. And this is pretty explicit that like when they're teenagers hunting ghosts, like he was always about like leading a group off to go off on adventures. His motivation was adventure. Her motivation is always a bit more spiritual. Like, uh, you know, like said earlier, she was a witch from, you know, her mid-teens. And I think that that's actually kind of a great thing about their partnership in this film and in, you know, and in Hellier and other things they've done. You know, Greg is a hype man. Dana is the guiding intellect and moral sense, the, the sort of the nous of the operation. Greg brings the adventure. Dana brings the spirituality. And at the end of this film, it's really interesting. After all is said and done and the unbinding is performed, and there's actually a fairly lengthy kind of mopping up where people are like kind of thinking aloud about what it all means. Dana has a penultimate monologue and Greg has the ultimate, the last monologue. And Dana says something very interesting about the lost history of the gods, how old gods and goddesses have perhaps been forgotten, like Mokosh, and how perhaps they're coming back to us now. And she says, uh, talks about this history of forgotten gods. She she says that history is not history. It's like a living organism. It's like a living, breathing thing. It's finding its way back into the collective consciousness and it's allowing people to reconnect with who they used to be. That's a quote from the film. Now, on that account, she's talking about this as history itself is a living, breathing being, which I find fascinating, but she is definitely talking about this phenomenon, whatever it is, as a that side entity, something over there, something that has its own autonomy, its own agency, whether or not the Newkirks or anyone else are around to observe it. I mean, she's talking about forgotten gods that nevertheless are coming back. Well, if we've forgotten about them, 
then the idea that gods are really just aspects or manifestations of her mind really doesn't obtain because like how could they be aspects of her mind if we didn't know anything about them? She is talking about these objects very much as possessing a spiritual force that exists on its own terms. Mm -hmm. And Greg, when he talks about a haunted object changing how we think about haunted objects, I think what he often means is something that troubles the assumption that a haunting is really kind of emergent from a subjective psyche, that it's on this side of the subject-object divide. And he talks repeatedly about how the crone troubled that assumption in him, that he goes in with an assumption a lot of the time that haunted objects are haunted because they're owners have some kind of trauma that yeah. the object is associated with that they're working out, right? And obviously, once the object is separated from that person, the phenomenon ceases to exist because the connection is severed. But then at the very end, the last line of the film, he says, it's the belief and the telling of the story that gives haunted objects power. And to us, that's why it is so important to tell the right kind of story, because if it is told enough time... It becomes real. Hyperstition. And it seems to me that there's actually kind of a slight difference between those two viewpoints. And those that difference between those viewpoints might end up with some of the, we might say, ethical inconsistencies yeah. that are observed throughout the film. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because if history is a living organism, if story is an aspect of reality and it has its own kind of autonomous agency over us or claim on us then uh, we don't get to just decide what the story is going to be. The story needs to be co-created with these powers out there. And so that's interesting. As you were talking to, things kind of clicked into place and they kind of, the film flashed before my eyes again. I think what you were saying was very wise. And I suddenly realized that with absolute certainty that if I found this statue, I would hopefully with the proper precautions and magical procedures, you know, that impose themselves on such situations, I would remove the nails and the noose. There's an inherent violence to that image when you see it. Yes. That it's shocking. It's that no wrong that an archetype or goddess could do, because you, you can't stop goddesses and archetypes, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, could justify an act yeah. of violence like that. Yeah. From our yeah. human moral standpoint, sure, the gods are amoral assholes. That's possible. They're chthonic. They're neither good nor evil. Ergo, they're pretty bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, so, but we have a moral side. So when you're confronted with an image like that, I mean, it's not like it's, if, you, if I saw that image in, a, in an art museum, if it was the expression of an artist, I would not go and rip the nails out. But when you come to the conclusion, clearly justified and uh, perfectly valid conclusion, that this is the result of a working, this is not the kind of magic that, from which anything good comes. You know, this is a, a basic principle in Wicca. It's that bad magic leads to bad things happening to the magician. Right. So unbinding is the only answer to this thing. I believe that what they mm. did was precisely, and I have to say, the way, the care with which Dana, like shamelessly in this age, the secular age of skepticism and moralism and whatnot, 
does all the work. One of the things I love about Dana Newkirk is her attention to detail and her clearly yeah. thick end approach to witchcraft. She's like very yeah. careful. At one point you see her teaching her students online. She's like, so I'm taking my dominant hand. And oh, doing I'd this. love that. And it's like, everything has so a method. You can tell she's an excellent teacher yeah. and you can tell that she has performed these rituals thousands of times. That is absolutely in her marrow. I love watching tell that she's little not clip. A, she's not a chaos magician who will just come yeah. up with like the next Pepe the Frog, you know? Like yeah. she's doing this according to a tradition. She emphasizes the ancestral dimension of witchcraft. She emphasizes by her actions, the importance of components and order, order, you know, the order of operations. She believes in the, the method. The whole thing they do at the end is like, she's the one who insists that they scan it on the mountaintop because she doesn't think they can remove the nails and noose before. That has to be the unbinding. The unbinding has to happen on the mountain. Well, they don't scan it on the mountaintop. They put it in a a mold, like yeah. they take an impression of it. Yeah, exactly. That's what they do in the mountain. Yeah, 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 they exactly. did the scanning Sorry, earlier. that's what I meant. Yeah. I meant to make the yeah. mold. So I completely agree with Greg's aside about hearing screams in an alleyway and going to help. It mm -hmm. is your duty to help those who need help. Of course, the scream can be deceptive, but I think that the statue in itself is a kind of scream for help. That yes, whatever would I result agree. in this image. And so the right thing to do, even without any research into neo-paganism and Orthodox Christianity and the Ukrainian population of Ellenville or whatnot, is to unbind. You know, I, I was saying like, okay, Dana is the sort of like moral and spiritual center of this project, of the Planet Weird project. And I, I referred to Greg as a hype man. And that makes it sound like he is almost a, like a corrupting influence or something on this project. But that's not what I intended to say. There's a way that the two of them work together to create something very special. And just returning to the thing I started with, the investigation as spiritual practice. You know, what does spirituality look like? You know, think about like the, the world that we live in, the standard weirdest fear complaint. We live in a world of materialism and a kind of despiritized, disenchanted reality. 
Well, if we take that seriously for a sec, but we also take seriously the possibility that it is still possible for people to have spiritual experiences, that it is possible to have a spiritual life. It is possible for human beings, even in this age of lead, to connect with the higher truths, with sacramental reality, whatever we want to call it. Then what form is it going to take? Well, it could take a revivalist form. Some of the neo-pagan groups that are casting about for old gods and goddesses to revive, often for some kind of political reason, sometimes unsavory political reasons, right? Even if we leave the politics off to one side, there's going to be a lot of people who feel like, yeah, I kind of can't make myself just believe in some god randomly. It isn't me. That isn't my culture. There's always going to be a feeling of like, let's pretend for a lot of people for that kind of spirituality. So what would a scientific age kind of spirituality look like? It might look like an investigation. Now, investigation, as I've said, it has its own challenges, particularly a kind of estrangement of subject and object and certain ethical consequences of that. And we might also say that investigation, by virtue of being a project launched by a subject, the heroized modern subject given the powers of reason to gain purchase on the world. Yeah, it's a very self-driven project. There's a lot of ego in it, a lot of me in that kind of project. It's Herculean. Herculean. And that's probably one reason why sometimes the Planet Weird productions seem to rub some people in the weirdest fear the wrong way. It seems like it maybe has a little too much of the self in it. Mm -hmm. But I like the idea that this represents a kind of spirituality that is native to our times and that Dana and Greg show different sides of that spirituality. We've talked quite a bit about Dana, but Greg also, by virtue of being Mr. Adventure, the guy who's impelling the chase, impelling the research, impelling the investigation, is also impelling the story. Yeah. Exactly. You know, he's the storyteller. He is the man who is turning this into this shaped narrative object that now they've told the story, now it's in our head. And I take him seriously when he says at the end that it's important to tell the story the right way because if it's told enough times, it becomes real. As you say, that's hyperstition. I think what they're doing is from a certain point of view, crazy ambitious and laudable. They have created a story. Maybe it's a myth. You know, maybe it's just like a folk tale, a spooky tale to be told around the fire centuries hence, and people forget where the story even came from. But they tell a hell of a story. And ultimately, that story stands to become part of a kind of repertory of ideas that we have, not just about haunted objects, but about the world generally. And they are speaking this understanding into existence or filmmaking this understanding into existence. And Greg is absolutely the heart of that. So he has a very important part to play in this as well. I'm speaking as if I know them. I'm making all of this up. I'm... I... <laughs> I'm probably completely full of shit, and I apologize to Greg and Dana Newkirk for making so many unwarranted assumptions about people I've never met. But anyway, that's how I see it. What I love about Greg Newkirk is his completely unblemished 
perfectly preserved capacity for wonder, which 99% yes. of people lose. He has a capacity for wonder, whereas Dana strikes me as a bit of an insider of the weird. Like she's kind of, she's got a yeah. foot in it already. So, you know, but Greg is, he can generate wonder in himself and therefore he can generate wonder in us. And I think wonder is the absolutely essential ingredient to turning investigation into a spiritual path. Yes. Right. Astonishment. This is yes. what Plato says, right? That um, philosophy begins and ends in astonishment. Philosophy is an investigation. It's a creative act as well, but it's an investigation into the nature of being. And it knows, it, it assumes, it proffers as an axiom the fact that at the end, one will be astonished. And there's something astonishing in this world. And it's worth looking for it. And it's worth finding it and seeing it and things that are familiar even. But speaking of unseen presences, uh, I just want to end with a nod to Carl Pfeiffer, the director of the film, who actually gets the full billing, a Carl Pfeiffer film. So obviously the shaping of the story, you know, often in documentary, the director kind of disappears behind the protagonists who are real people generating the story before us, you know, fair enough. But uh, this is an, a beautifully made movie. Like, it is. Like, yeah, the, the level of craftsmanship, the editing, the way the story's told, I found to be absolutely stellar. And if there is a, a God at work behind all this, someone who's pulling the strings and giving it the shape it has, it's the director. And so I just want to say that all the things we've been discussing, notwithstanding, this is a wonderful movie. It stands on its own, which is the best an artist can hope for, is to make something that stands on its own, a thing that is in itself its own realist moment. So I, th I just think it's a wonderful piece of work and uh, highly recommend that our listeners watch it. As Arthur Macken says, wonder is of the soul. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.